Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the spring of 1788, the framers of America's infant constitution were desperately trying to get the states to ratify their draft. One of the reasons for skepticism was a new system of federal courts, something that had been missing from the old Articles of Confederation. Writing in the Federalist Papers, number 78 to be precise, Alexander Hamilton did his best to reassure his readers. The courts in the new constitutional system would have little capacity to annoy or injure Americans' rights, as they hold neither the sword nor the purse. The judiciary will be the least dangerous branch of government. But today's Supreme Court is a far cry from Hamilton's harmless third wheel. The nine justices get final say on all questions under federal statutes and the Constitution, and they clearly have an endless capacity to injure and annoy millions of Americans, even as they please others. I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, where is the Supreme Court taking America? As gridlock plagues lawmakers in the capital, across First Street, the Supreme Court is busy transforming America. In this term alone, it's overturned the right to an abortion, which has been settled law for nearly half a century, loosened gun laws, just as Congress moved to tighten them, eroded the separation of church and state, and limited the federal government's ability to regulate carbon emissions. Public confidence in the court is at a record low. How is the Supreme Court changing America? And as it does so, is it undermining itself? With me to discuss the Supreme Court's extraordinary and consequential term are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and Steve Maisie, our Supreme Court correspondent. Charlotte, you're back from your camping trip in Alaska. Do you wish you'd stayed away? It's good to be back in the lower 48. I have to say it was such a huge news week this week and last week. It's a bit overwhelming. In addition, of course, to all the Supreme Court news, you had the January 6th hearings, including Cassidy Hutchinson's astonishing testimony. And I was also struck by General Michael Flynn's testimony when asked by Liz Cheney if he believed in the peaceful transfer of power. He pleaded the Fifth Amendment, and you cannot make that up. No, it's true. You can't. And Steve, you've been extraordinarily busy over the past week as these judgments have come down in a flurry. How are you holding up? Uh, I'm glad it's Friday. Uh, the, the end of June is always uh, a, a busy time, but this is the busiest I've ever been 
I think I counted uh, in the last eight days, six articles. And I think this is my fourth podcast. So I'm ready for the weekend. Well, we're delighted to have you with us, Steve. And I think Charlotte and I are going to be asking you to explain a lot of these judgments and also to consider where the court goes next. Well, I will try to summon some answers. The Supreme Court decision that's demanded the most attention in the past few days is undoubtedly Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overturned the 50-year-old federal right to an abortion in America. And one of the people I talked to about the impact of this reversal is Leah Lippman. She's a professor at the University of Michigan, host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, and she's also written briefs for cases in which just six years ago, the court affirmed the right to an abortion. Dobbs is already having an immediate impact. I think by most counts, there are now at least seven states that have basically prohibited abortion in light of Roe. There are likely to be others. You know, by some projections, it could be almost half, even though the court's cases had allowed abortions to be pretty limited and restricted. It was still possible in every state for there to be one abortion provider. After Texas's restrictive SB8 went into effect, clinics in neighboring states like Oklahoma or Colorado were able to handle the influx of patients who were able to and lucky enough to be able to travel state to state to obtain care. But now people are going to have to travel several states. You know, for many people, it's likely a flight away and it's a several days trip. And even with respect to medication abortion, we don't frankly know the extent to which this court would allow states to apply some of their criminal abortion bans to medication abortion. And so even for comparing it to the world where we were a year ago, it is still a dramatic change. Can we talk a little bit about the composition of the conservative majority? Because in Dobbs, we saw there was some disagreement among the justices, right? You had John Roberts uh, concurring, but saying he perhaps wouldn't have gone as far. You had Alito writing majority opinion. You had Clarence Thomas saying that it didn't go far enough and perhaps opening the door to a kind of reversal of rights that would take America so I'm not sure when, maybe some point in the in the 18th century, it seems, on questions like um, gay rights. To what extent do you think those divisions within the conservative majority might be a check going forwards? I mean, we can pay some attention to the divisions within the conservative majority, but the reality is we just don't know a ton about where some of these justices are. And that uncertainty itself should be concerning, given the importance of the rights that Justice Thomas and Justice Alito have both indicated they are willing to revisit. So, you know, you were referring to Justice Thomas's concurrence. In that concurrence, he said he would revisit the court's cases recognizing a right to contraception, right to marriage equality, as well as the right to same-sex sexual intimacy. Now, Justice Alito has already joined opinions calling for the court to overrule Obergefell versus Hodges. So when he writes in his majority opinion, you know, nothing in our opinion today should be read to cast doubt on our decisions in Obergefell like marriage equality. It's pretty cold comfort given that you already know he's open to revisiting that decision and the reasoning in his majority opinion seems to lay the groundwork for the court to do so in a future case. You add to that the fact that Justice Gorsuch in one of his earliest writings on the Supreme Court was inclined to read pretty narrowly the court's marriage equality decision in Obergefell versus Hodges. So 
I at least I'm concerned. And I think people forget that the 2016 Republican Party platform promised not just to appoint justices who would overrule Roe versus Wade, which, you know, they did, but also promised to appoint justices who would overrule Obergefell versus Hodges, the marriage equality decision, too. Yes. And John Roberts wrote a famous dissent in that case, didn't he? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the church and state separation? Because that's a question that's come before the court again this term, and where it seems the court seems happy to erode you know, that important distinction. It feels like with many things in America at the moment, we almost need to start again from first principles and lay out you know, why that uh, firewall between church and state was there in the first place. Yeah, so there's this idea that is reflected in the Establishment Clause of the Constitution, which prohibits the government from establishing a religion, um, that church and state should be separate. You know, this is partially to protect the views of minority religious faiths, but steadily over the last decade, if not more, the court has dismantled the wall of separation that exists between church and state. So five decades ago, you know, the rule was governments aren't allowed to fund religious education because, again, What they are doing, if they do that, is supporting religious, potentially indoctrination, and giving people's money to a religion that they do not support. Now, however, the rule is states must fund religious schools. They must fund religious education if they fund secular education, if they provide scholarship programs or vouchers or tax credits for individuals who go to private non-religious schools. And so the court has basically, you know, in Justice Sotomayor's words, kind of broken down the wall between church and state and made it so states can no longer try to comply with the Establishment Clause and maintain a neutrality toward religion. There's been a long debate about which kind of precedents the court would be happy to overturn and which ones it wouldn't. How has this session, the first session with all those justices appointed by Donald Trump on the court, shifted your understanding of the nature of constitutional law in America? I mean, the nature of constitutional law is now pretty clearly whatever five justices say it means. They have jettisoned Roe versus Wade. They have overruled foundational cases on the Establishment Clause. They have greatly limited states' ability to enact gun restrictions, and they're not even done yet. So this is a court that is very aggressive, very restless, and inclined to change the law in ways that the Republican Party wants it to. Charlotte, let's start with Dobbs, which is the big one. I mean, we've had some time to think about this because we had the draft opinion back in May. Did you know that this had happened or were you completely off grid in Alaska? Yeah, I had been in an oil reserve in the Arctic where I saw three grizzlies. And then I came out to something more scary, which was that Roe versus Wade had been overturned. I think the fact that it wasn't necessarily surprising actually didn't diminish for me and for many people, the impact of the ruling. Of course, the result is that many women will die because of this ruling, and there will also be severe damage to their economic and physical health. Abortions won't stop. They'll just be much more dangerous. 
I, th- I think, though, that the main thing that really struck me in the past week is the degree to which the justices are selective and making the facts, historical facts, suit what seems to be their own personal ideology, you know, specifically on abortion, there's not a consensus on the rights of the unborn human being in Alito's world. That's a belief, right? It's a belief that happens now to be held by the majority of the court. And they're prioritizing the rights of the, quote, unborn human being over the right of the woman. And that's a prioritization based on personal conviction, not on law. Steve, one judgment where we weren't perhaps so sure which way the court was going to go was West Virginia versus EPA, the case looking at whether the federal government has the right to issue regulations affecting power plants when it comes to climate change. What did you make of the majority's reasoning in in that case? Yeah, this is this is a major case asking uh, a question about a series of regulations that never went into effect uh, and that the Biden ad- administration has said they're not going to put into effect because the emissions goals of that clean power plan from 2015 have already been met. What's most notable to me about that case is that the Supreme Court decided to decide it at all. And in her dissent, Justice Kagan pointed that out and said, well, mootness rules aside, this is not something that the court normally does. And it's we have a discretionary docket. And it's extraordinary that the court would weigh in on on a regulatory system which is not in place. But the basic argument from Chief Justice Roberts is that Congress and the Clean Air Act was not explicit enough in authorizing the types of regulations that Barack Obama wanted to put into place in 2015, which is a generation shifting, as it's called, system of rules that readjusts the uh, power sector so that cleaner forms of energy like solar and wind are favored over coal. Charlotte, I texted you as soon as that judgment came out because I was hoping you were going to be able to reassure me that the Supreme Court striking down a regulation that wasn't actually in place wouldn't matter that much. But unfortunately, you weren't able to give me that reassurance. Can you explain why? Can you explain the consequences of this ruling? Yeah. So I think the issue with this ruling is that it neuters the power of the president to take action on climate. And that's the only federal branch of government that has taken any interest in acting on climate. And so I think if we had a Congress that seemed more likely to to try to accelerate the energy transition, that would be a very different situation. But given where we are, this means that it's yet another obstacle in America's effort to decarbonize, an effort that's moving forward because of action in the private sector and because of activity by some states, but is clearly, clearly not on the scale required to deal with the climate challenge. Charlotte, do you expect these judgments to shift votes much in the fall? You can see in the fundraising emails and the various solicitations that Democrats are making that they really hope that this will cause people to turn out. And that is reflected to some degree in polling. You see the Democrats say they're more likely to show up in November because of these rulings than they were before. The historical record would suggest that Supreme Court rulings don't do that much to to mobilize voters. Clearly, they have mobilized voters in the past on the other side, on the Republican side, to try to get justices in place. But it's not clear. There's no historical evidence to suggest that 
a ruling itself is a cause of getting more voters to turn out. Yeah, I don't think we're going to have much change in the big picture. But in these individual states, perhaps governor's races could be affected by by the Dobbs ruling. Um, One example is in Pennsylvania, where abortion is currently legal, uh, but there's a tight race between Doug Mastriano, the, the Republican, and Josh Shapiro, the Democrat, uh, and the results of that election could affect the lives of all the women in Pennsylvania and whether they will have abortion choice or not moving forward. So like many things with this new Supreme Court, the patchwork of states and various regimes in them um, are going to be the, the real question moving forward, I think, rather than just the, the national picture of where Congress stands. And that's a really good point. In a moment, we'll go back to another era when the Supreme Court tested the limits of its powers. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. For me, this week, the standout read is probably our essay about how in just 25 years, Hong Kong has become effectively a police state. You can watch interviews with exiled Hong Kongers and explore our data team's visualizations of how the territory has changed. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. It all started for me on a balmy day in the fall of 1950 in the quiet Kansas town of Topeka, when a mild-mannered black man took his plump seven-year-old daughter by the hand and walked briskly four blocks from their home to the all-white school and tried without success to enroll his child. On that day, Linda Brown didn't know that her family was preparing to make history. Along with 12 others, they'd been chosen for what would become perhaps the most famous of all Supreme Court decisions, Brown versus the Board of Education, to end segregation in American public schools. My family became lost in the turmoil of the ensuing years, years that scarcely touched us. We lived in the calm of the hurricane's eye, gazing out at the storm around us and wondering how it would all end. Brown didn't come from nowhere. Since the 1930s, legal experts from the NAACP and Howard University had been chipping away at segregation through the courts. But public schools were the big one, a target that could overturn the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson ruling of separate but equal once and for all. In 1952, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Thurgood Marshall of the NAACP combined five related cases to make the strongest possible argument for action. The arguments were heard, the nine justices deliberated, but at the end of the term, it was deadlock. Chief Justice Fred Vinson and several others couldn't agree that the court had the authority to act. They agreed to reconvene in the autumn. But before they could do so, Chief Justice Vinson died of a heart attack. President Eisenhower appoints Governor Earl Warren of California as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Earl Warren was one of the most popular politicians in California history. Fiscally conservative but socially progressive, he served three terms as governor, 
nominated by both Republicans and Democrats. Earl Warren will be the second Republican on the Supreme Court. He will preside over a tribunal which is faced with history-making decisions. He also had something Vincent hadn't, an extraordinary ability to persuade. Over the next five months, Warren lobbied his colleagues relentlessly. He argued that the present was at issue, not the past, and drew on modern studies to understand how segregation harmed children. The Browns waited. Until an afternoon in May of 1954, when I was in school, my father at work, and my mother at home, doing the family ironing and listening to the radio. At 12.52 p.m., the announcement came. The court's decision on ending segregation was unanimous. A year later, the court ruled again, and again unanimously, that desegregation should happen with all deliberate speed. For Warren, that unanimity was crucial. Without it, he worried the court couldn't hope to carry the country with it in such a momentous decision. Particularly when the court is unanimous on a, on a subject, you know, you, uh, you feel that, uh, that progress is being made. In the end, that progress was neither deliberate nor speedy. The Brown rulings did not end the reality of segregation in America, but they did set the course for the transformative civil rights victories of the 50s and 60s. And the Warren Court was just getting started. In a series of cases, it removed prayer from public school classrooms, expanded defendants' rights, established the principle of one man, one vote, and the right to privacy. But as these rulings came through, the feeling among some conservatives that the court was overstepping its powers grew. Billboards sprung up, urging impeach Earl Warren. Even President Eisenhower seemed to regret his appointment. President Eisenhower has been reputed to have, uh, to have said that the uh, biggest damn fool thing he ever did was to appoint me. <laughs> I see. He never told you that. But <laughs> Chief Justice Warren's consensus building showed how much and how rapidly a united court could change the country. You must have felt at times terribly isolated and exposed in some of those We did indeed, and there are a lot of people who are of the opinion that the, uh, that the Supreme Court just reached out and grabbed on to those issues and, uh, and decided them in, in, uh, in opposition to Congress and, and so forth. But, but really, all the, all the court was doing was, was, uh, was filling a vacuum because Congress had not, uh, had not acted. But Americans were already deeply divided over whether such change should be within the court's power at all. I believe some court decisions have gone too far. For the Warren Court, the reckoning came in the form of Richard Nixon, elected amid the turbulence of 1968 with the promise to rein in the justices. As far as judicial philosophy is concerned, it is my belief that it is the duty of a judge to interpret the Constitution and not to place himself above the Constitution or outside the Constitution. Presidents come and go. But the Supreme Court, through its decision, goes on forever. The same year, Earl Warren retired. And in less than two years, Nixon filled four of the nine seats with justices he judged to be strict constructionists. Just like that, almost half the liberal Warren court was gone. 
But Nixon could not have predicted that during his own presidency, one of those very appointments, Justice Harry Blackmun, would write the majority opinion in the case that would define the debate over judicial overreach for the next half century and beyond. Roe versus Wade. Steve, there are a couple of things that struck me looking again at Brown versus Board of Education in this particular week. The first thing was that this is the decision everybody loves to love, right? It's now accepted by pretty much everyone as one of the Supreme Court's greatest moments. But at the time, it was extraordinarily controversial and there was a lot of opposition to it. And that makes it all the more remarkable that Earl Warren was able to get unanimity. And the other thing is that I think I hadn't quite appreciated quite how much the change of personnel mattered when it came to Brown. And there are echoes there with what's happening now on the court, right? I mean, what we've seen in June really is the aftershock of the 2016 election when Donald Trump was able to appoint three justices and fundamentally alter the balance of the court, which has opened up all sorts of possibilities. Yes, as I was listening, I was trying to think of another landmark case that was decided 9-0, and, I, and one doesn't come to mind. Roe versus Wade was 7-2, to two, which is less divisive than many people might think. Marriage equality in 2015 was a 5-4 to four decision. The first major establishment clause case in 1948, Everson versus Board of Education, was 5-4. to four. And in 2007, there was a case called Parents Involved, which was uh, sort of a follow-on to Brown versus Board of Education. It was about whether cities are able to constitutionally consider race when they are assigning students to high schools, um, integrate them as opposed to keeping them segregated based on neighborhood trends. And that was a five to four decision. And what it revealed was a fundamentally split view on the court as to what the legacy of Brown is. Is the legacy of Brown promoting integrated public schools or is the legacy of Brown avoiding all classification of individuals by race? The latter was the prevailing theory, which was that of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts. He famously wrote in that case something like, uh, the way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discrimination on the basis of race. Uh, whereas Justice Breyer, who just yesterday ended a 28-year tenure on the court, had a very different view, which is that, no, the legacy of Brown versus Board of Education is to promote integration of the schools. The court is still divided about it. Charlotte, while we're talking about judicial history, I know you were struck looking at the court's rulings over the past week or so, the degree to which the justices seem to cherry pick the bits of history that suit their argument. Yes, I was most struck by this in New York versus Bruin, which was a dramatic expansion of the right to bear arms. In 2008, there was an important ruling that allowed individuals to to bear arms for self-defense in their own homes. Now they can do so outside of the home. But in Breyer's dissent on this, he spoke about something which is a pretty frequent criticism of, of originalism, and I think with good reason, which is this idea of law office history. And he said, a results-oriented methodology in which evidence is selectively gathered and interpreted to produce a preordained conclusion. Also, if you look at Carson versus Macon, which allows individuals to use state money to send their children to religious schools, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote 
to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical. Same goes for the Second Amendment as well, right? James Madison, the author of the Bill of Rights, twice introduced state legislation in Virginia that would impose penalties on anyone who bears a gun out of his enclosed ground, unless it was while he was performing his duty in the militia. And, you know, the the problem for me comes not perhaps with each of these individual cases. It's it's the pattern when you put them all together with the judgments. I mean, in Dobbs, you have the court essentially ruling that, well, abortion is really a matter for legislatures and the court has you know intervened improperly here. In the guns case, you know, they've overturned the legislature and they said, well, actually, what matters is, is, is history and our particular reading of it and our interpretation of the Second Amendment. It's really hard to find a consistent approach here other than that you get to the answer you want. I want to talk just for a second about Roberts because he's the chief justice of the court, right? The chief justice is a convener. He has only one vote, the same as the other justices. But what Roberts has long spoken about is the importance of consensus, the importance of judicial modesty. Even in issues where you have a 6-3 ruling, you have individual justices writing their own opinions. Roberts has spoken about how the proliferation of opinions is, is a bad sign. It's a sign that justices are pursuing a kind of individualism rather than trying to reinforce the institutional power of the court. John Roberts has been chief justice since 2005, but he really only had about a two-year period where he was in control of the court. That's because Justice Anthony Kennedy really was the swing justice who directed which way the court was leaning left or right on the major cases for many years. Um, When Justice Kennedy retired, there was this two-year period between 2018 and 2020 when the chief justice was really calling the shots and a lot of very important decisions came down in just the way that he wanted them to come. Then when Justice Barrett joined the court, suddenly he had five justices to his right, and he has no longer been able to control that court. And there's no better illustration of his loneliness on the court now, I think, than his concurrence in the Dobbs opinion. He writes that opinion all by himself. It clearly is the position that he wanted to attract a couple of justices at least, onto. And that opinion basically says we are going to uphold the 15-week Mississippi abortion ban, but that's all we're going to do. There's no need to take the additional step, what he called the unnecessary jolt to the legal system, of overruling Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I feel the loneliness of John Roberts is going to be a theme for the next few years. OK, we'll be back in a moment to look ahead to the court's next term and what will be keeping SCOTUS in the spotlight then. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's not just the sorts of questions the court is considering that are shifting. It's also the way in which that work is being done. The court has dramatically increased its use of what's called the shadow docket. 
This is an umbrella term for everything that isn't the publicly reasoned named cases that we've been talking about up until now. So all those obscure decisions, emergency decisions, often unsigned and unexplained. To get to grips with this, I spoke to Steve Vladek. He's a professor at the University of Texas. He's argued cases before the Supreme Court and testified to Congress about what's driving the increased reliance on the shadow docket. I think part of it is that the Supreme Court has shifted its approach for when it thinks it's appropriate to hand down these kinds of emergency orders. Part of it, I think, is unquestionably a change in the composition of the Supreme Court, where now there's a more consistent majority that's willing to intervene earlier in these cases. Um, and, And frankly, I think part of it is just repetition. The familiarity breeds contempt, right, where in the 16 years of the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations, the solicitor general, the government's lawyer, the the most frequent litigator before the Supreme Court, asked the justices for this kind of emergency relief a grand total of eight times. So one request every other year. You know, in the four years of the Trump administration, we saw 41 of these requests. But I also think that the court is acquiescing in contexts in which historically it would not have, to a degree that would have been unheard of as recently as five or six years ago. Steve, this all sounds quite bad in the sense that I think ideally in a democracy, you want some visibility on the decisions that the Supreme Court is making. Is there an upside to this that I'm not seeing? We should start from the proposition that the shadow docket is not per se a bad thing, um, right? That every appellate court in any legal system is going to need some mechanism for case management orders and for emergency orders, right? Um, Part of the problem is not just the uptick in how often we're seeing it. We're also seeing the court insist that even when it's not providing an explanation, these orders are still precedential. They still have to be followed by lower courts. It becomes problematic when the court is not explaining itself and expecting that to have downstream substantive effects. And this is where I think the most interesting figure in this story um, is Chief Justice John Roberts. Because Chief Justice Roberts, you know, who's no fan of abortion, affirmative action, voting rights, um, any number of other things, has actually been a frequent dissenter with the liberals in the shadow docket, much more often on the shadow docket than on the merits docket. And when he's written to explain his dissents, they've always been sort of, you know, differentiating between the substance of what the case is about, where he might actually be sympathetic to the party that has prevailed, and the way the conservative majority is going about ruling for them. My hope is that we can actually divorce the shadow docket critiques from the lefty-righty phenomenon, and that the chief justice is the canary in the coal mine in that respect. I mean, if John Roberts is the one standing up saying, you know, the other five conservative justices are taking inappropriate procedural shortcuts and are moving too quickly, that ought to carry a heck of a lot more weight than someone like, you know, me standing up and saying that. I want to shift gear a little bit and talk about the court's next term. What do we have coming down the tracks that's going to be really consequential and it will be on the front pages of newspapers like The Economist? The first thing we should say is, you know, the court hasn't even filled up half of its docket. But the obvious headline is a pair of cases about affirmative action, uh, racial preferences and higher education, where I think the expectation is that there are at least five votes to overrule not 50 years of precedent, but 45, um, right, respecting and identifying circumstances in which universities, colleges can use race as a preference in admissions. And I think, you know, John, but for overruling Roe, that would have been up there on the pantheon of, of dramatic reversals 
We also have another major case about the intersection of religion and LGBT rights next term, a case called 303 Creative, about whether states are allowed to require businesses to serve customers equally, even if their religious beliefs preclude them. Is the court going to make it harder to show uh, violations of the Voting Rights Act? I think that's a really important case as well. And then, you know, John, we have a midterm election coming up. And I don't think I'm speaking out of school to suggest that it's very possible cases about the election will make their way to the court, whether on the shadow docket or the merits docket. And I guess this to me is the biggest takeaway from how things have gone over the last couple of weeks of this term, which is it is now clear that there is a majority of the court that is not remotely afraid of its shadow and that is quite willing to reconsider even the most solid, significant, powerful precedents. And that's going to have implications not just in these high-profile cases, but in lower-profile cases as well. Do you think the kinds of questions that the court is now considering, as well as the way it's considering them and, and the willingness to overturn some of those precedents, do you think that fundamentally changes the role of the court in America? Over a long enough period of time, I don't see how it can't. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is something that I think surprises a lot of folks who don't follow the Supreme Court carefully, right? The, the Supreme Court chooses which cases it hears. And so even within the, you know, 55, 60 merits cases, the court's deciding each term, these are cases that have been handpicked by the justices out of almost 10,000 um, that they've decided to review. You know, I, I think we are at a, an inflection point when it comes to the relationship between the Supreme Court and the American people, where the court is clearly galvanizing strong views on both sides. And I guess, you know, John, what's missing from the story is the middle. I don't know where the compromise is. No one's writing in these cases to say, we understand the other side, and we still feel impelled to rule this way. And in the long term, I worry about a world in which the courts are so polarized because if and when we need them, let's say to, you know, resolve disputes over the next presidential election, we're going to be in a pretty scary place if there's half of the country that will automatically assume that a decision they don't like is illegitimate. Charlotte, let's begin where Steve left off there. I mean, since these rulings came down, there's been a certain amount of discussion of a crisis of legitimacy for the Supreme Court. I think that's a little overwrought. I mean, if you look at polling on the Supreme Court, support for the court, trust in the court has dipped. But it seems to me that probably the test of whether the court has a real crisis of legitimacy is whether people stop obeying its opinions rather than what Americans broadly think of it. So I would say two things to that. One is that the polling on the confidence of the court varies quite a lot depending on how you answer the question, but there clearly has been a decline. And I guess I'm a little bit more concerned by that decline than you are, largely because if you think Congress is completely incompetent, then two years later you vote for new people, whereas in the court, President Trump's oldest appointee, Justice Kavanaugh, is 57. So we're going to be dealing with these people for a long time. And then I think on the the second issue that you raised, which is whether people will actually start disobeying the court, I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I mean, if you're in a state where you have a victim of rape who's seeking an abortion and you're the local prosecutor, are you going to prosecute that person? I mean, are, are you really going to do that? I, I wouldn't be that surprised if you start seeing some level of testing how far localities can push back. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, in terms of the numbers, it does seem that public support for the court is at an all-time low. But 
more important than the overall aggregate numbers are the ways in which Democrats and Republicans look at the court, and those are completely mismatched. It's having a really partisan valence attached to those views that's so dangerous, and that's where the legitimacy problem comes in. One thing that's just worth noting, the past two and a half years, the court has been shut to the public. No one has been able to attend arguments, although they have been able to listen to them. And one thing that you would be able to see as a visitor to the court, if you were able to go, are turtles carved into the architecture of the court um, at the bottom of pedestals, at the top, um, in, in the hallways, indoors. And they even sell little turtles in the gift shop. And what do the turtles represent? They represent slowness, the deliberate, the court moving in a lower C conservative fashion, step by step in the way that John Roberts um, often, although not always, wants to. And what we have now is the court just galloping forward. I don't know what the right um, animal to substitute for the turtle is, maybe a hare, maybe a racehorse. But this is not a legitimate use of the judicial function. Uh, just to take whatever you can as quickly as you can, as boldly as you can, in ways that politicians do. And it'll be interesting to see if the pace continues next term. Steve, I wanted to ask you about the coming term. So it seems likely that affirmative action in college admissions is going to go. So let's leave that one. How alarmed should I be about Moore v. Harper, which is a case which is perhaps less familiar to some of our listeners? You should be very alarmed about Moore v. Harper. Uh, So this is a case that just yesterday the court agreed to hear next term, so maybe in December. And this is a case out of North Carolina that addresses a, a theory known as the independent state legislature theory, which is a radical rethinking of the way that federal election rules uh, work and who's responsible for setting them. In North Carolina, there's a mismatch of party between the Republican-controlled legislature in North Carolina and the governor seat, which is held by a Democrat, and the um, state Supreme Court, which is also a majority of Democratic judges. And basically what Moore versus Harper tees up is the question of whether state legislatures have complete autonomy to set election rules, including perhaps to effectuate the subversion of an election along lines that the state legislature prefers. So this is really the John Eastman approach to trying to overturn the 2020 election by getting individual states to substitute slates of electors just based upon what the legislature wants. And there are a couple of textual hooks in the Constitution that advocates of this independent state legislature theory point to. And it's just notable that the court is taking those seriously enough to hear in a in one of its 60 cases that it hears during a term. The only person we haven't heard from yet on this question is, is Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So in the Moore versus Harper oral argument, I think everyone is going to be listening to what she has to say. I think what's notable about all of what we've discussed is both the wide-ranging scope of what the Supreme Court is considering and how it's considering it, and how unlikely it seems, at least, that there's going to be any kind of reform. So 69% of respondents in a C-SPAN poll from earlier this year preferred 18-year term limits. Even Democrats and Republicans, according to a different political poll, favor some kind of term limits. But it doesn't seem likely, at least so far, that there's much appetite within Congress or within the presidency for enacting those reforms. 
Yes, that's right. One reason we haven't spent a lot of time discussing court reform is it seems so unlikely. And the corollary of that is that this court with this composition is likely to be around for for a very long time, for decades potentially, Steve. Yes, um, all three of Trump's justices that, that he appointed are in their 50s, and they're likely to be around for the next couple of decades at least. We shouldn't end the podcast without noting that there is a new justice as of yesterday. Uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson has replaced Justice Breyer. So we have the first black woman on the court. um, And we have the first, I think, array of justices ever in which there is not a single man who is a liberal justice. So all of the liberal justices are female. Okay, before I let you two go, I have a quiz. The Economist first mentioned a chief justice by name in the fraught days following Abraham Lincoln's inauguration and before the outbreak of the Civil War in the spring of 1861. The newspaper expressed relief for the stability of the new Lincoln administration that Chief Justice Roger Taney had not resigned, despite being 84 years old and in office for 25 years. Appointing a chief justice is a rare opportunity for a president. There have been only 17, nine of whom have died in office. Question one, who was the last Democratic president to nominate a chief justice? And for a bonus point, who was the jurist? Ooh, this sounds like one for Steve. Hmm. Um, let's see. Was it Chief Justice Fred Vinson? Uh, it absolutely was. <laughs> so good. I think that's my first point ever in a quiz. Well done. Who was the president, Steve? Uh, That was Harry S. Truman. It absolutely was. President Truman in 1946. You have to go back to 1946 to find a Democratic president appointing a chief justice. Question two. For the first century and a half of its existence, the Supreme Court didn't have its own building. Now, of course, it inhabits the incredibly grand neoclassical marble palace at 1 First Street. Most of the marble is from Georgia and Vermont. But to which decidedly anti-democratic European leader did the architect Cass Gilbert write to secure the golden columns flanking the guardians of American democracy? Well, that's a beautifully phrased question, and I'm afraid I don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm fasc- I don't know either, but I'm fascinated to know. Tell us. So apparently Gilbert wrote to Benito Mussolini. In You know, I so- almost guessed Mussolini. Oh, well. In May 1933, to secure the finest cuts of Siena marble. Hmm. The resulting effect didn't go down too well with all the justices, however. The future Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone wrote that the effect was almost bombastically pretentious, wholly inappropriate for a quiet group of old boys such as the Supreme Court. (laughs) Much to say on that, but I won't. Well, Steve, that's a triumphant quiz performance from you. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me this week, John and Charlotte. It was great being here. And Charlotte, great to have you back from the wilds of Alaska. Good to be back. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan and Nico Rofast with research by Noor Abraham. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and review. That really helps us if you can do that. I know it's kind of annoying to do, but it does make a difference. We now have a shiny new homepage where you can listen to every episode of the show. That's at economist.com slash checkspod. So do please check that out. And remember, if you want to write to us, you can find us at podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.